0: In session with Dr. Fadid Holakwi.
1: Good evening and welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadid Holakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Tonight I'll be joined by a special guest. His name is Dr. Dean Haycock. And his, if his name sounds familiar, it's because you might remember he is the author of the book, amongst a few others, but it was a book of the week a few weeks ago Tyrannical Minds, Psychological Profiling, Narcissism, and Dictatorship. And I was very happy that uh, after being in contact with him a few times, we were able to arrange for him to be on the show via telephone, which also means that he is on the East Coast staying up fairly late. It's already 11 p.m. there, so we appreciate that. Before I bring him on, though, let me just give you a brief introduction. Dean A. Haycock, Ph.D., is a science and medical writer who earned a Ph.D. in neurobiology from Brown University and studied at the Rockefeller University. He has been published in many peer-reviewed publications and is the author of Murderous Minds, Exploring the Criminal Psychopathic Brain, and Characters on the Couch, Exploring Psychology Through Literature and Film, along with several other books. He lives in New York, and he's joining us tonight. Let me bring on Dean. Dean, thank you for joining me tonight.
0: Thank you, for it. It's good to, good to hear from you. I just wanted to say... um. It, you're fading in and out a little bit. Okay. I'll, I'll do my best to hear you. So
1: I, hope, I hope that won't be okay. an issue, but we'll, we'll see how that goes. If it is, let me know. Maybe I can speak louder as well. Uh, okay. But again, thank you for joining me tonight. Um, and he's. I'm getting word that if you could speak louder when I put you back on, that would be great. Uh, and I'm hoping we'll, we'll be okay with the sound. Let me know how it goes. Uh, okay, as I mentioned I yeah. as I mentioned um, earlier, you are the author of many books, including Tyrannical Minds, Psychological Profiling, Narcissism, and Dictatorship, which I um, read a few weeks ago and talked about on the show and, and really enjoyed where you uh, talk about first just what psychological profiling is, and we might get into some of the arguments for and against doing that in general, uh, but also getting deeper into some tyrants and dictators throughout history and, and looking at their psychology on a deeper level. And I, I definitely want to he- talk about the book itself, but I always am fascinated, interested to know what motivated and inspired someone to write the particular book they write. So what inspired you to, to write Tyrannical Minds?
0: Well, it's funny you ask that. I, I recall it very clearly. I was about 10 or 11 years old, and like many... Um, you know, young people interested in soldiers and war, and I was looking at a book called The Pictorial History of the Third Reich. And the beginning of it goes through, um, you know, the war with soldiers and the background of uh, uh, the the key people involved in the war. And as it went on, uh, the evidence of the horrors that the Nazis perpetrated uh, began to appear in this book. Mm -hmm. And by the By the end of the book, I was just uh, totally befuddled by the the idea that a man like Adolf Hitler could exist. Mm. It it didn't make any sense to my very Uh naive young mind that this was a human being. I couldn't understand how a human being could do this Mm -hmm. kind of thing. And I think that for the rest of my life, I was sort of wondering about that. Mm -hmm. And then finally, when I began writing uh, full-time, I I see I was addressing that question when I wrote a book on um, uh, studies of psychopathic individuals and Mm -hmm. um, the uh, studies neurobiologists are doing with brain scans and and other psychological tests. And then the next, after um, uh, an intervening book on the psychology of... um, In literature and film, I I guess I return to that subject with Mm -hmm. tyrannical minds to try to answer that question of how this kind of evil can exist. Yeah, and I'm happy to say that I'm a little less confused now after spending (laughs) years studying what uh, other people have have um, come up with and uh, drawing my own conclusions.
1: Yeah, and and it's uh, it it is horrific and sometimes unimaginable to think what people have done to people and the Holocaust, of course, being a prime example of that, of something that's hard to even fathom that actually uh, people would do that to others. And even we say, ask that question of how it happened or why someone would become the way that Hitler was. And people even debate about that, which you, you talk about in the book, even should we try to understand Hitler? Would that in a way give him Credence, or is it better just to think of him as a one-off as just some evil human being that is because he was just so inherently e- evil and so not human that we shouldn't even study him and just give him that credence of looking into who he was, which I don't agree with. And obviously, based on you writing this book, it appears that you disagree with that as well. So maybe you could share some of your thoughts on that question of should yeah. we even try to understand yeah. evil?
0: I think it's it's interesting to to um, try to understand why people feel that mm-hmm. it, it's almost in in a sense it's sort of a, a humanistic um, viewpoint versus a scientific viewpoint or a medical viewpoint. Um, the horrors were were so terrible um, that people are some people who feel this way um, are very concerned that if you Describe personality traits or personality disorders, and you attribute them to someone like Adolf Hitler. That those traits or those disorders will explain or take the blame for his actions. Mm-hmm. And um, some of these critics are very much concerned that uh, he is to blame and not his psychology, mm-hmm. and that um, we should never or they claim that we should never um, allow someone to get away with this kind of uh, behavior uh, due to a psychological condition. Mm -hmm. Of course, on the other hand, um, we can condemn that type of behavior, but try to understand it. Right. And if we can understand it, we can maybe spot it in others early. And um, that, I think, is the most important thing we can try to do. And also... It can just help us understand human behavior, because these people are out there. They're among us. Mm -hmm. And with the right circumstances, um, they can emerge with the right supporters, the right uh, um, disruption in society. Mm -hmm. And so it's very important we understand the psychological traits of people who will perpetrate these kind of crimes.
1: Absolutely. Like the traits and as you were just mentioning, the the societal, cultural context that can also contribute to uh, a tyrant developing. And yeah, I think there was many people that that are arguing against trying to understand someone like Hitler. And they say it's almost like uh, we would make those lives that were lost, lost in vain, where for me, it's actually the exact opposite. If we don't try to understand what happened to make sure it doesn't happen again. That would be more having those lives lost more in vain to not try to understand it better to prevent it from happening again. And in this interesting way, one of the the aspects or attributes that many dictators have is a messiah complex. And Hitler absolutely had that. And it almost seems that people, of course, they don't think he's the messiah, but they try to make him this devil and this one evil that just existed and cannot exist again. But I think that's a dangerous conclusion to draw, because as you mentioned, there's lots of people that have similar characteristics, of course, not exactly the same, but similar ones that could rise. And we've seen other dictators. Hitler was not the only dictator, uh, of course, that we've had and even still have today. And so we know it can happen. It has happened, unfortunately, likely will happen. And we want to try to understand it to make it less likely to happen and so to me yeah studying something and even in the book i think you mentioned cancer is this horrible thing Mm -hmm. but we because it's so horrible that's actually why we're studying it to try to reduce the the damage it inflicts and so there's a connection that that we that could be made there so yeah i think it's so important to try to understand um what has happened to learn from it and then related to that is the in a way brings the next question so even if you decide, okay, it's worth uh, doing, we should try to understand, is that can we understand? uh, Is there any credence in psychologically profiling someone from a distance or someone in history? Uh, Maybe you could share some thoughts on that.
0: Sure. Um, I'm happy to do that. Can I add one other thing I just thought of about um, uh, the criticism of trying to explain these people? Mm -hmm. Because um, you might be... um, Um, exonerating them of blame, and the the important thing is, even from a legal standpoint, someone who has a personality disorder who commits a crime um, is still guilty Mm -hmm. in in a legal standpoint. So a person with psychopathic traits, for instance, um, will not be let off from the crimes they commit, because they know the difference between good and evil. Mm -hmm. And so we can understand these people. We can um, describe their traits and, and still acknowledge that they knew they were doing um, terrible things, mm-hmm. and no one is is letting them off just the way courts will not let someone off who commits a crime who has uh, a personality disorder, antisocial personality disorder. right. Yeah, like
1: yeah, explanation is not justification. We're not right. saying it's okay. By trying to understand it, we're just trying to understand it. But yeah, going back to that, um, the the question of uh, is there any credence, or can we really profile right. someone from a distance?
0: Right. Well, it's a it's a very interesting history. Mm-hmm. Um, in the the modern history of this began in World War II, when um, Wild Bill Donovan, the um, uh, head of the Office of Strategic Services, um, called up a Freudian psychoanalyst in the Boston-Cambridge area named Walter Langer. Langer um, had written a letter to Donovan uh, after he read an article in the newspaper uh, describing um, some of the plans, the the goals that uh, that our government had for psychological warfare in World War II. And he, he was very critical of the way America had used psychological warfare in World War I, because basically it just amounted to attributing atrocities to the Germans, and some of, that they did commit some atrocities, but the psychological warfare was basically propaganda. So Walter Langer wrote to Donovan and, and suggested that they use more modern techniques to affect the morale of, of the enemy. And um, Donovan called uh, Langer. Langer got on a a train, went down to Washington, D.C., and was hired. For about a year, he worked uh, for the OSS, and not a lot came from that work. But then one day, Donovan called him into his office, and he said he wanted to know about Hitler. He wanted to know um, things like what influenced him, what what his childhood was like, and he wanted to know uh, basically the things that made Hitler tick. Mm-hmm. And then, he added, Donovan said, in addition, we ought to know what he might do if things begin to go against him. Right. And so Langer knew the task he was faced with. He couldn't, he couldn't study his subject. He couldn't interview him. He couldn't get him on a couch. And he had to rely on all sorts of indirect source material, propaganda, films, letters, books, people who had met him. And as, as uh, Langer said in his, uh, uh, his book that um, described this uh, adventure of his, he said, after he agreed to do it, he said, uh, I became a psychological bedfeller to Adolf Hitler. <laughs> mm-hmm. And when he was done, he worked with three other uh, mental health care providers and um, he produced a report. That report probably didn't have much effect on uh, the way the war was won, but it included seven predictions uh, in in response to uh, Donovan's request, and six of them were accurate. And so that very much uh, impressed Uh, people who came later and saw this report. The most important of his predictions was that uh, Adolf Hitler would probably commit suicide, Uh and he eliminated many other possibilities. Um, After the war, um, Harry Truman and some others were very concerned about the United States having a, a spy agency because we had just dealt with the Gestapo and the SS, But eventually, um, after the OSS was disbanded, they created the Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, People who had worked in the OSS went over to the CIA, and they remember what Langer had done. And so they established a a, um, unit which did this full-time, and they had some very good successes Uh, predicting behavior i'll give you one quick one sure there was a in 19 early 1960s there was a uh, dictator in bolivia named barrientos and the cia profile barrientos um described him as very macho uh, very determined to uh, appear uh, tough and rugged and uh, he took a lot of risks and they predicted this would be a problem for him. And very shortly after this profile was made, um, Barrientos was flying a helicopter too close to the ground and hit a high power line. Mm-hmm. So uh, this and other um, examples gave these guys uh, uh, confidence in how they could accurately predict uh, behavior. And in the book, I go into quite some detail about how President Jimmy Carter Mm -hmm. relied very heavily on the psychological profiles of Anwar Sadat and Menachem Begin prior to the Camp David negotiations.
1: Yeah, that's what I thought was uh, quite fascinating about, uh, and he himself, how much President Carter said how useful it was, and he used that information to as he i didn't know until i read it in your book to shuttle back and forth between them which is how the negotiations went but using what he had learned from those psychological profiles to affect the way he would present things to each of them and and make little twists and turns Uh, i'm kind of cutting you off there because we're at a commercial break And when we come back maybe we can talk a bit more about uh that specific uh incident or issues and also psychological profiling In general, along with some of the reasons why psychological profiling doesn't always happen, something called the Goldwater Rule, which we'll also talk about. Joining me tonight, Dr. Dean A. Haycock, author of Tyrannical Minds. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delacoui. We'll be right back. Back, joining me tonight, author of Tyrannical Minds, Dean Haycock. Let me bring him back on. Dean, are you there? I'm here. All right, great. So before the break, um, I did. We, you mentioned, and we briefly got to talk about um, how Jimmy Carter, President Jimmy Carter, in September of 1978, um, was able to have what was called the Camp David Accords, and how he benefited benefited greatly from the intelligence. That gave him psychological profiling on the two leaders, and I know you wanted to add a little bit more about that.
0: Right. Yeah, I just wanted to give uh, one quick example. Um, The profiles said that each of these leaders in the Middle East very much wanted to be seen Mm -hmm. as um, dominant historical figures. They wanted to have a place in history, in in the big picture. But a couple of books by um, Begin, Menachem Begin, came out around the time they were preparing the profile. And the profilers could see there that, and and through interviews with people who knew him, that he could also become very bogged down in getting things precise. Mm -hmm. So he could even hold things up arguing about one particular word. Uh, in, in agreement. And this happened during the negotiations. Uh, after these two principals first met, they retreated to separate cabins in, in, in Camp David, and Carter, as you, as you mentioned, shuttled back and forth. And they got hung up on this, and Carter saw that Begin was very much uh, concentrating on some minutia in the negotiations. So he used a psychological trick based on what was in the profiles that he read, and he said to Begin that Sadat had determined that this could be left to underlings and that he would look at the big picture and move Mm. on. And um, the profiler, Jared Post, uh, wrote that when Begin heard this, he put his head up and said, I can see the big picture, too. We'll leave this to our... (laughs) Are um, subordinates to fix, and after several um, of these incidents, Carter said, uh, "Let me get the quote exact." He said, "After spending 13 days with the two principals, I wouldn't change a word in the profiles." He said mm-hmm. of the of the profiles he received, and he assiduously studied these uh, prior to the Camp David Accords, and 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 was very grateful. Even years later, he credited um, the information these analysts had gathered with uh, bringing an end to hostilities between Egypt and Israel. So it was was quite significant.
1: Yeah, it's remarkable. I remember reading that was quite interesting in that when you say it is so interesting that people who were making these analyses based on, you know, second-hand accounts and Mm -hmm. different things, they were able to be so accurate or accurate enough to be that helpful is quite remarkable that he said he wouldn't change a word after spending so many days with them. I think that is quite fascinating. Now, um, of course, we're talking about some of the successes of psychological profiling of foreign leaders, but it doesn't always go so well, which we would expect just because we're not going to perfectly predict human behavior, but also because not all psychological profiling is done equally or is equally valid. So maybe you could share some of those incidents or stories to, to highlight when it kind of goes wrong or what can be done poorly in the process.
0: Sure, sure. There, there's one um, profile which illustrates this. And you, when you compare these um, profiles, you can see how some have received much more attention uh, than others. A good example of one which needed more work was written in 1961, two years after um, Fidel Castro took over Cuba. Mm -hmm. And this profile um, vastly overestimated Castro's psychological weaknesses. It cast him as much uh, more unstable than he actually was. And it also, importantly for um, the U.S. government, it failed to predict his ability to hold on to power for decades. It predicted he wouldn't last very long. Yeah. And I think the explanation for that is um, it, they only had two years uh, in which to, to examine this man, and they didn't have as much uh, source material to go on. And so. Yeah. As you pointed out, uh, with any human endeavor, uh, you can get good and, and better and worse performance based on the material you have and the analysts who are doing the work. Mm-hmm. And there's another example of that which shows another side of this. In President uh, Clinton's administration, he wanted to uh, return to power. Uh, Jean Bertrand Aristide.
1: Mm-hmm. Was that in They're, Haiti or? Pardon me. Was that in Haiti? I forgot where that was. In
0: Haiti, yeah. exactly.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And um, this was in 1994. And a Senator, his name was Senator Jesse Helms, did not agree with President Clinton's foreign policy. Mm-hmm. And Jesse Helms somehow got a hold of an an inaccurate CIA profile. And he used it to declare that Aristide was a psychopath. Mm. And of course, you know, Jesse Helms was not qualified to describe anyone as a psychopath, and he was merely using this this report, which which, like the previous one I referred to, wasn't particularly sophisticated mm-hmm. or accurate, for political reasons. So that's that's another uh, area in yeah. which. Um, uh, These psychological profiles can be used for the wrong for wrong reasons. Right,
1: and this kind of brings us to this is where things get a little bit murky, and we enter gray areas. of Of course, we're talking about how good psychological profiling can be and how helpful, but then as you were just touching on, sometimes it can go wrong. And then on top of that, uh, the people making the determinations and judgments might have their own biases or agendas that can affect how things are done or what gets represented so maybe this could transition us into talking about the goldwater rule sure
0: the reason you know when i when i was writing this book i as i as you you asked me the beginning why i why i was writing Mm -hmm. it and mostly i was concentrating on these these uh most famous most infamous tyrants but as i was writing the book more and more after the election on uh, in um... two thousand sixteen there were headlines which actually reflected psychological uh... profiling right. in our own country so mm-hmm. i couldn't i felt i couldn't ignore the controversy of uh... some psych- mental health care workers psychologists and psychiatrists declaring that donald trump um, was unfit for office because of his personality traits and other psychiatrists disagreeing with them um, the american psychiatric association uh, certainly is opposed to any psychiatrist uh, discussing a diagnosis of an individual that they have not um, examined and do not have permission to talk about mm-hmm. so there, there's in the field and Playing out in the media, there's this very large controversy. Right. What the what the um, American uh, Psychiatric Association is referring to, this Goldwater rule, had its beginning in 1964 when Republican Barry Goldwater was running against Democrat Lyndon Johnson, and um, it was Goldwater knew that Lyndon Johnson was going to win that election. John F. Kennedy had been assassinated, you know, the year before, and he he knew he would get the vote, the sympathy vote. And so he was kind of outspoken, Goldwater. Mm-hmm. And he said some things that concerned people a great deal. Um, I remember one of the quotes was, he said, extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice, and moderation in the pursuit of justice is no virtue. Mm-hmm. And people got very scared. Um, about um, some of the things and the tone that Goldwater was using. So a, a publisher of a magazine called Fact mm-hmm. sent out a survey to approximately uh, over 1,000, um, I'm sorry, but 12,000 mm-hmm. um, psychiatrists, and he, he asked them, if they believe Barry Goldwater was psychologically fit to serve as president of the United States. So about 1,200 responded to this survey, and it was quite an embarrassment for the psychiatric community because the diagnoses were all over the map, from paranoid schizophrenia to uh, antisocial behavior, and it just really made no sense. Uh, Twelve years later, the American uh, Psychiatric Association published a guideline, which is known as the Goldwater Rule now, which says that no psychiatrist, that it's unethical for psychiatrists to give professional opinions about public figures whom they haven't examined. And this guideline, it's called the Goldwater Rule, really strictly only applies to psychiatrists who are members of the American Psychiatric Association, but it is, is recognized and known by, by so many people that it has a great deal of influence. Mm-hmm. Now, with Donald Trump's election, some psychiatrists and psychologists determined, based on their experience treating patients, that Donald Trump had some characteristics or significant number of narcissistic characteristics that raised their concern. Mm -hmm. And they declined to diagnose him, but they said they had a duty to warn the public based on their professional um, experience. Um, people who oppose that invoked the Goldwater rule, saying you, you have no right discussing this. And so there's this argument back and forth that, well, one side is not diagnosing. We're just saying based on our experience, we see potential trouble here. And as you know, um, you psychiatrists and psychologists do have a duty to warrant if they see or have evidence that uh, a patient could harm somebody,
1: right? Harm or even it's a, yeah, if it's a specific. Usually, in the when it comes to therapy, it's that you have uh, a specific uh, victim or potential victim. So mm-hmm. it's like someone says, "I will go kill my boss," and you know who their boss is, and they specifically name one person. Then you have a duty, usually depending on your state, but for example, in California, to warn the individual. Who is potentially, you know, the, the right. victim, and then also the authorities. And so, in this case, uh, these mental health professionals are invoking that same rule or duty and saying we have a duty to warn, essentially the public, um, yeah. or protect. And really, it's not even just America. You could say that if someone is concerned about what uh, an American president would do, it, it can affect many people as well. And so they feel that it's more about a duty to warn than. Uh, the Goldwater rule about diagnosing and that there's also a distinction between diagnosing and saying if someone is fit or that uh, they, they could serve. And I definitely agree with you, and we're getting close to another commercial break, um, that the Goldwater rule needs some revisiting because it can handcuff mental health professionals from almost saying anything because they feel that anything they say might feel like it's violating that rule and they would get some flack or uh, potential repercussions for that and also i'll mention that uh my guest tonight dean haycock also has written a blog recently on psychology today that's related to this topic uh, the politics of political profiling and goes a little bit more in depth about uh the goldwater rule and what happened there But after the break, we can maybe talk a bit more about this and I would like to hear your insights on how we could modify or revisit the Goldwater Rule and some related issues. So again, my guest tonight, the author of Tyrannical Minds, Dean Haycock, you're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dalaqui. We'll be right back. back. My guest tonight, Dr. Dean Haycock, author of Tyrannical Minds. And before the break, um, I was talking to Dean about the Goldwater Rule, which is the rule that uh, came about because of the 1964 presidential election where a magazine, I I think it's kind of funny that it's called Fact Magazine, um, but they asked a poll of over 12,000 psychiatrists to respond and just over a thousand of them did. And uh, in research, we would talk about a selection bias there where the people that responded might not necessarily represent all psychiatrists and what they truly believe. But anyway, because of the outlandish uh, diagnoses that they came up with and the um, negative effect this had, the APA released what has now come to be known as the Goldwater Rule, which makes it so that we can't diagnose someone who we don't personally examine but we were talking before the break how this is in some ways handcuffed mental health professionals to feeling like they can't say anything uh, in their professional opinion about any potential leaders. Um, so I wanted to hear from you, Dean, maybe your thoughts. If we do revisit this Goldwater rule, how should we revisit it or how might it be modified? Sorry, I'm not sure we're hearing. OK, sorry, we lost you there for a second. Not sure if you were able to hear me.
0: Okay, I can hear you now. I I did, there was uh, nothing for a while, but I hear you now.
1: Well, I I hope you didn't miss too much, but I'll just, at the end, I was asking if you could share some of your insights or opinions on if we do revisit and modify the Goldwater Rule, what might be some things that could be done or or some areas to explore with that?
0: Yeah, I think one we've sort of uh, touched on already is to acknowledge that there um, is a duty to warn, mm-hmm. And uh, one good example of that was uh, when um, an expert named Jared Post uh, produced a profile of Saddam Hussein, um, he was uh, sort of called, up, called out by uh, members of the American Psychiatric Association um, who criticized him for doing that and uh, dr post uh replied that he was not giving an expert psychiatric opinion but rather a politi- he was creating a political personality profile hmm. and he he told them he felt obligated to do it and that it would have been it would have been unethical for him not to not to give his assessment. And he said that he believed he had a duty to warn because Saddam Hussein was a threat. And um, there, I think, the Goldwater Rule should acknowledge that professional mental health care providers have an expertise, and if they see um, something that they consider threatening, they should have some outlet to discuss it. Mm
1: Um, It doesn't
0: mean that they should give a diagnosis, but they certainly should be able to comment on their opinion if someone is able to function effectively. Mm -hmm. So I think it should be uh, opened up, uh, certainly in that regard. And you and I have discussed previously Mm -hmm. how it's just routine now for presidents and presidential candidates to have physical exams Mm -hmm. and to release the results of those exams well there's no reason um there's no logical reason not to have psychological or psychiatric exams and to release those results effectively the problem of course is that there's still stigma uh, attached to um mental health problems Mm -hmm. And that will be something that um, we're, we'll have to fight against for a very long time. Yeah. But raising that issue, I think, can be very, very um, helpful if we start talking about that now.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more that, uh, you know, I think we we did speak about this before that the mental health is even more important to the president's job than physical health. You know, physical health, at least as there's some minimum where they can function. That's okay, and they can survive. But then their mental health, it's, a, of course, extremely stressful job that involves making very high-level decisions and balancing uh, lots of emotions and feelings and different things that are going on. So we want someone who does show some level of stability and there aren't some huge concerns. And I think, yeah, the stigma of mental illness plays a big part in this because I'm actually just thinking about this as you're describing it, that if we do this and we have a full psychological workup of, someone who's running for president or who is president, everyone has some issues, just like everyone has some health issues, they'll have some mental health issues, which doesn't necessarily disqualify them from being a president or even being a great president. Abraham Lincoln, you know, infamously, I guess you can say, had severe depression, but he's considered one of the greatest presidents in U.S. history, and some might even argue it's because of his depression, not despite, I'll leave that for maybe another time, but it shows that but i think if this were to happen they say oh this person has some level of heightened anxiety or some level of this and people would say oh then they're just kind of crazy and they would be so bad at being president not realizing that we all have something and it wouldn't necessarily disqualify them it would depend on the you know the degree and the different combination of things that were going on but i think it will be hard but i hope we move towards that to making that more accepted and even expected that people who are running for high offices would be uh, given a psychological screening to understand where they're at
0: yes uh, you you had you had mentioned some points that, that um i was I agree with and I was going to add that that simply having some psychological issues does in no way disqualifies mm-hmm. you and and you raised um, you used Lincoln as an example which who was a perfect example yeah. mm-hmm. I mean this man was an outstanding president he he saved the nation and yeah. he suffered from severe depression at times and it, mm-hmm. it uh, the country was not worse off for it
1: right at all. exactly yeah so I think that's where there's going to be a lot of you know uh, progress we need to make of destigmatizing further mental health illness and, and understanding mental health better as a society that everyone's going to have something and even when we say we evaluate someone it doesn't mean if we see oh you have a a little spike here or a little spike there that would disqualify them but we want to better understand them and of course this would be some kind of a bipartisan or non-governmental type of either professional or professionals who would be doing the evaluation because of course political uh, opinions and biases could get involved and we want to avoid that from happening so as much as We're in a way saying the Goldwater Rule should be revisited. It's not that the Goldwater Rule in total is bad or wrong, in my opinion. It does have some um, guidance or wisdom behind it that, yes, we have to be aware of how this could be used poorly, that psychiatrists and psychologists might use their degrees in a way to push a personal uh, political agenda or be influenced in ways they might not realize. But it doesn't mean that we should take away the whole mental health uh, community from having any input or any contribution to what's going on here
0: exactly i agree yeah,
1: yeah. and i think that's something that i hope will we'll continue to to get revisited you know you also mentioned um, something uh, uh, when we talked before about the psychiatrist as a psychohistorian and this mm-hmm. relates to this issue of how we see a value in psychological profiling but in some ways we don't uh, allow it to happen in some ways could you maybe talk about that what that is
0: Sure. Um, it, it's interesting. In um, let me see. I think in 1976, mm-hmm. the American Psychiatric Association itself, the one, the authors of the Goldwater Rule, and who still today um, strictly um, advise um, that um, no mental health care worker should comment on a specific individual. They they have no problem with professionals commenting on uh, general conditions, mm-hmm. but. They do not um, uh, ever approve of commenting on a specific individual. But they, um, in 1976, they uh, formed a task force, and that task, the members of that task force published a report called The Psychiatrist as Psychohistorian. And they looked, it was quite popular then, a psychohistory where you examine um, famous people from a psychological, psychiatric basis, Um, they examined the validity of of this type of work and they came to the conclusion that it is valuable and it's legitimate to prepare um, psychologically informed leadership studies and the caveat of foreign leaders in particular and of historical persons but the caveat was that um, it had to no diagnoses were made Uh so it was okay to discuss these individuals and their psychology um, uh, but not to diagnose them if it was in the the national interest Uh so I I found it very interesting that they acknowledged the validity, the usefulness of this kind of profiling as long as it wasn't applied to any living politicians in right. the United States, in the
1: United States, right? Because it could be for foreign, right? Yeah, and that's where, and then it can get, uh, it gets even more messy. Where someone could say, "Well, couldn't it be affecting uh, the national interest of the United States who becomes president?" Of course, it, it can. Uh, <laughs> but I think my my interpretation or my understanding of some of that when I hear it is that they recognize how. Uh, heated and debated it can get if people from different sides start giving their diagnoses of current candidates in the United States, for example, and maybe they wanted to avoid that altogether. So you can talk about people in the past, or you can talk about foreign leaders, yeah. but kind of keep it out of our own, you know, home, so to speak. Right. But I think, you know, the purpose would hopefully be not to, like I was saying before, for people, professionals to uh, have their own political agendas, but actually to serve the national interest as Uh, The report, it says, says, you know, as long as it's serving the national interest, it's okay, And so I think that would hopefully be the intention. And I'm hoping we're moving more towards that. And even to me, I think someday this is, of course, my own bias, but people will look back and wonder how it wasn't done sooner that people that were going to take this type of leadership position did not have any kind of a psychological screening or we did not evaluate them at all. Um, right. to, you know, I think it will be looked back on as why didn't we do that? And I think, as we were talking about before, the stigma of mental illness, I think, plays a big part in that as well. So hopefully, as that reduces and we make some strides, uh, that will move towards making this more part of how things are done. Just so be expected to have that happen.
0: Right. And and to to be fair to the American Psychiatric Association, they're very concerned about. Some individuals who make um, uh, very uh, strident claims mm-hmm. and very um, attention-grabbing, you know, right. headline-grabbing diagnoses of, of people like like Donald Trump,
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and
0: I think a lot of psychiatrists, you know, disagree with that. But there are some who go to the extreme, right. and in condemning them, I think they're also trying to um encourage or discourage anyone from mm-hmm. from discussing the uh, a profile of of a living president or a living politician, and they're not i think looking at the subtleties of it, looking for instance at uh a discussion of their ability to to function properly rather right. than just to to diagnose them yeah. so in on one hand. It's accurate to, to... It's good to criticize anyone who makes extreme claims mm-hmm. about someone and diagnoses mm-hmm. them with specific disorders as opposed to someone who says, we see a problem with behavior. Right. Uh,
1: and and yet yeah, and I think that, you know, you bring up a good point that I think they're trying to be prudent and just saying because it can get so um, messy and irresponsible that someone could be so irresponsible it could be better to avoid it altogether. And you're right. Unfortunately, what would get the most attention would be the most outlandish claims and uh, people would do that to get attention and, and that I think would be worse for the psychological and psychiatric community to have that out there so I think they're trying to be mindful of that and have a more prudent approach, which I think uh, has some wisdom behind it, as I mentioned, but I'm hoping that it can be revisited so that we can also utilize the, the science and the, the wisdom that is in the psychiatric and psychological communities to contribute in a positive way to the public discourse and understanding of what is going on. You know, I'm looking at the time when we just about have to wrap up. Uh, Dean, I know it's close to midnight over there on the East Coast, so thank you for staying up with us uh, to be on the show.
0: Oh, I'm happy to. I I, I love talking to you.
1: Oh, I really enjoyed it as well. And if you want to to hear more, you can find him online. But also, if you want to read from his writings, we have Tyrannical Minds here. that I'm holding in front of me, a book I really enjoyed, Psychological Profiling, Narcissism, and Dictatorship. And as I mentioned, you can also go on Psychology Today. And if you search Dean A. Haycock, you'll find uh, several blogs that he's written on there that are also meaningful, um, some related to this topic of psychological profiling. Uh, which I got to read some of them today and found quite interesting. Dean, again, thank you so much for joining me tonight. Oh, you're welcome. All Bye. right. Bye. A big thank you to Dean A. Haycock for joining me tonight. Um, again, his book, Tyrannical Minds, I highly recommend it. And a big thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fire Delaqui. Have a wonderful night.